Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. Welcome to our service. I'm Monty Judah with Lion Land Ministries, and this is our B'nai Shalom Arab Shabbat service. We're glad that you were able to join us. Uh, thank you for being a part of the Sabbath and joining us for us throughout the year. Uh, we, of course, encourage participation in the biblical holidays. For example, Passover is coming up here very shortly in April. And we ourselves are hosting a Shavuot Feast of Weeks conference that will be occurring in the first part of June. Uh, for That's also one of the appointed times. And then obviously toward the fall, uh, when we observe uh, trumpets and atonement, we also host a Feast of Tabernacles. You know, in keeping with the faith and keeping the commandments, beginning with the Sabbath, there's also the appointed times of the Lord. And you have to plan to be a part of it. You have to plan to be part of a Passover Seder and to count the Omer and plan for the Feast of Weeks and the other fall holidays. And so we want to encourage you in your observance in your area, whether it be in your home or in your community, or if be, join with us and be a part of it. The Lord has given those to us for festivals of joy and rejoicing, and it's part of our faith. So I want to encourage you to do that. If you'd like more information on our Shavuot gathering for the Feast of Weeks, go to our webpage. It's scheduled for June 2nd, 3rd, and 4th of this year here in Oklahoma. And also for the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, our theme this year is Zealous Over Zion. Registration is now open to plan for the remainder of the year. Go online, register for that. We'd love to have you. Um, we're getting a lot of good feedback from our Yavo article where we had Eddie uh, share with us a great article in the Yavo. And I want to encourage all of you who are listening to the broadcast, Line of Land does publish a monthly magazine. It's free of charge to you. If you would like to receive that, just contact the office and we'll get your name and address and we'll be happy to send one off to you. Excellent articles. That's kind of one of the mainstays that's been with Lion and Lamb all the years that we've been doing it, was that we offer that magazine each month with an article and a teaching in it. And it's usually something separate from what you normally get here. If you have an interest in more teachings, maybe in the written form, why contact us who be a part of the Yavo magazine. We'd be happy to send it out to you. Um, let me also, just as a personal note, thank you for your continued prayers for my wife, Lynn. Uh, her diagnosis of lung cancer has definitely been medically confirmed, and uh, she definitely has it. She's in the process of all of the decisions that have to be made on uh, methodology for treatment to restore her health and healing. And, of course, at the forefront of that is that we are asking first and foremost for God to extend her life and to heal her from this cancer. We appreciate all the kind notes and cards, calls that we've received, and I want you to know personally that Lynn is very much encouraged uh, by uh, the many outpourings of the brethren uh, for her at this time, and I personally thank you as well uh, for that. All right, I'm ready for Kiddush and for our Sabbath, amen? So let's uh, turn to Kiddush now. Join my family as we usher in the Sabbath.
Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kedoshanu Bemetzvotov Betzivanu Lehad Lechner Shel Shabbat Amen Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Plus the wine. Baruch Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. One beautiful bread. Hamotzi. Hamotzi lechem in haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Let's bless our wives. Lord, thank you so much for blessing me with my wife. I pray that you bless her hands as she prepares our home and takes care of it throughout the week. Thank you for blessing her hands as she takes care of our child. And thank you for blessing me with everything I can do to bless my wife so that she continues to bless me. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. And we do the blessings over the sons. Yeah, that's you.
Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Micha Mocha. Micha Mocha Ba'elim Adonai Micha Mocha Nedahar Ba'chodesh Nohora Tehilot O Sefele O Sefele Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord, who is like 
take you, O Lord. Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-shabbat, la'asot et ha-shabbat l'adortam b'rit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael orhit le'olam, k'shashet yamim asadonai et ha-shamayim v'et ha-retz v'yom ha-shvi'i shabbat v'yinafash. All together. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. We all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha uv'kol nashicha, uv'kol me'odecha. Ve'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha, hayom alevavcha. V'shinantam lavanecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Father God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abba, we magnify you here in this place, and we declare that there is no God like you, no king like you. Father, all we can say is that our lives belong to you. We honor you. We love you. You're our all in all. And Father, we magnify your holy name here in this place.
from me I know Come on, sing it again Do what you will with me Father I'm yours Father I am yours Father that's what we declare that we belong to you that you're everything that we need so oh God we need you here do it again visit us here
Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If we would, all turn in your Bibles to the third book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. And as you are opening the scriptures, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Barchabanu Mikol HaAmim Venatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah HaAmen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is entitled Vayikra, which uh, comes from the very first phrase of the book of Leviticus, where it says, And the Lord called. The Lord called to Moses. Our Hebrew uh, name for the book is Vayikra, but our English Bibles all say Leviticus. This comes from the uh, Latin in which uh, the book is believed to have everything pertaining to the Levites or the Levitical priesthood. It's kind of an interesting thought uh, that that's the title of the book. When in all actuality, many of the commandments that come from this book are spoken to Moses and the Lord tells Moses to speak to all the children of Israel, not just the priests. Now, there are certain passages that are directed toward the priests and the commandments that they are to follow. However, the majority of the book is still spoken to the common man, to all of Israel. Before we go any further and before we get into the Torah portion here, let's go ahead and 
uh, talk about the book in the room and not judge this elephant by its cover or whatever other mixed metaphor you'd like to use, that we're talking about the book of Leviticus. Many people who have, who have come from a New Testament Christian background, this is the book that epitomizes the old law, the Old Testament. This is the thing, this is the book that you mention in a church and it's like, oh, all of those old commandments, all of that old uh, uh, things, that's done away with, that we don't have to deal with that anymore. there's There's a stigma with the book of Leviticus amongst New Covenant brethren. Um, I have a friend that talks about how one day the, God called him to, to uh, open up his Bible and open it up to a certain passage of Scripture. And he was afraid to open up the, the, the Scripture because he said that it's all like, look, Lord, if, if, if this is just going to be some sort of passage about filleting a dove, then I don't want to, you know, that's what the, the fear is. If somebody says, well, open your passage to this, something in the Old Testament, some people have a fear that that's what's going to show up. Or that if you open anywhere in the book of Leviticus, that's the bulk of the of the content there such is not the case now there are specific commandments having to do with how sacrifices were conducted in the sacrificial system with the tabernacle however there is may i submit to you that the book of leviticus is as applicable today as it was in ancient times and that there are true parallels and commandments in here that are applicable to you your lives today we as for those of us that are messianic teaching the torah on a regular basis those of us that not only follow the commandments and and are pursuant of the ways of Torah, but also have a profession of faith in Yeshua the Messiah, we see some of those parallels. Those things jump out to us. And then we only wish so often that we could share that with our New Covenant brethren, our friends, our family, and say that it's like, look, no, there's more about the Messiah. There's so many more things and prophecies he's fulfilled and parallels to the sacrifice that he made back in the Old Testament if they would only sit and listen to it, if they'd only truly go through the instruction and see the parallels and see how um, these commandments and these things work in their lives. It's, uh, it's always a funny uh, joke when somebody invites their New Covenant uh, brother or friend to a Messianic congregation, and you always kind of have that fear sometime you know, in the March, April, uh, May time frame that you're worried that it's all like, oh, wait, we're in the book of Leviticus. Maybe, yeah, maybe let's wait until Numbers or Deuteronomy before I invite my, my uh, Christian friend to hear about the instructions because you think if they just come to a Messianic congregation and the speaker immediately stands up, starts talking about the book of Leviticus, there's a stigma there. Walls go up. People don't they oh, okay, you're just talking about something that's old and done away with. May I submit to you that these things are not old. They are not done away with. I said last week that um, it is a tactic of the enemy to make one think that the words of the Lord, that any word of the Lord, any of Scripture is done away with or that it doesn't matter or that it's null and void. And I told you last week when we're talking about the creation of the tabernacle and the redundancy of those things that it is, there is no idle word in Scripture. And it is the tactic of the enemy. If you ever look at some part of scripture and think that something is not applicable, it's not valid, it doesn't have value to you anymore, or its value used to be something and now not anymore. That is the goal of the adversary to make you think that. 
to make you think that something that God said, when he said it's a perpetual statute, when he said that these are for your generations for an everlasting covenant, if the enemy wants to make you think that those things don't exist anymore. So again, I submit to you, the book of Leviticus is a continuation of that same theme. Our, the book begins with the preposition and, and the Lord called Moses. That means we're talking about the same subject. It's still a continuation of the same commandments that God is given, giving to the children of Israel through Moses. What happened previously is we constructed the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Lord is now dwelling with the camp. He's dwelling within the camp. That's what took place at the end of the book of Exodus. And here we begin Leviticus in the Hebrew. And the Lord called Moses. This is a continuation. This is now what are we to do? How are we to now interact with the Lord now that he is dwelling within the camp? Now that he is a part of the camp dwelling in his house, dwelling in his tabernacle, how are we to approach him? That is a, a very applicable uh, thing to talk about in our common day life and our belief. After we've invited the Lord into our heart, after we have asked him to dwell in our tabernacle, make us a vessel fit for his use, make us a vessel and a temple fit for him and his glory to dwell inside, then what? What are we supposed to do? How do we worship him? What is the procedure in which when we make a mistake, how do we make restitution? How do we fix that? When we want to just praise the Lord at a time, how do we do that as well? These themes are applicable and are a part of every single one of these sacrifices from the sacrificial system. So let me give a brief overview of our Torah portion here of the book first um, of the book of Leviticus. It uh, extends through Leviticus uh, chapter chapters uh, one through five, as well as the first part of chapter six. And it goes through and it describes five different types of offerings that were made in the temple service. Five different types of offerings. Now, one of the questions is, is why there are more than five types of offerings that were offered in the course of all the uh, temple service and the tabernacle service associated with holidays and other various kinds of offerings. But here in the first part of Leviticus, he gives us five. This is the number five is always representative of God's grace and our faith in the Lord. And he also specifies these things. These might be, I submit to you, possibly the ones we should take note of. Other ones were our holidays, once a year kind of things. But these are the ones that take place any given day at any point in time in your walk, in your spiritual life. These are the offerings that are given at that time. We start off. By talking about the burnt offering that is offered before the Lord. That this is a voluntary offering that someone would bring a, an animal to them, to the priests. And this was either it was a male and it was either a bull, a goat, a lamb, or two turtle doves or two pigeons. It was various based on what one could bring. However, it was voluntary. It was taken by the priests. It was skinned and it was then put on the altar as a whole complete burnt offering before the Lord specifically says that this was burned and it was a sweet savor in the nostrils of the Lord. Like I said before, this was voluntary, not required, and that this was to make atonement 
for one that did not know if they had sinned in any way, shape, or form. But again, like I said, this was voluntary. This is the same type of sacrifice that was done every day, every morning, and every evening of the day in the course of the um, temple and the tabernacle in the sacrificial system. It was a burnt offering of a lamb in the morning and a lamb in the evening. One other thing to note that I thought was interesting was the whole animal was consumed with the exception of the skin. That was saved and it was used by the priest in, in various manners. And when, I, when I'm talking about this, I always want to try and bring out the parallels between the words of the Old Testament and the Torah to how did the Messiah fulfill these things? How did he make these things perfect? And when the Messiah made his sacrifice, he was gone. There was nothing left of him at the end of the day after his resurrection. They opened the tomb and it's gone. He was gone. He was completely consumed, if you will, as his sacrifice. But what remained? The shroud, the cloth, the linen cloth, the skin, if you will. There's a parallel to the work in the sacrifice of Yeshua to the burnt offering. Also, something you should always remember, this could be a different kind of animal for each offering. However, what was commanded to be the perpetual tamid offering in the morning and in the evening was a lamb. Why was it a lamb? Well, we should always remember, and that's something else we can take note as the Messiah, when, who we call the Lamb of God, or who was our Passover lamb sacrifice at the time in which his sacrifice took place, that this perpetual offering, morning and evening, was a lamb. That's for us to take note in the morning, in the evening, on a daily basis, on a regular basis, the sacrifice that Messiah did for us. This is the perpetual sacrifice of the burnt offering. The next offering that we have listed, starting in Leviticus chapter 2, is the grain offering. This one's very interesting. This is the one that's not remembered whenever they think of sacrifices in the old, in, in the old temple system, in the sacrificial system, and... Christians might say that, oh, sacrifices are done with. The, Yeshua was the final sacrifice. There's no need to kill any more animals. Well, here's an offering that had no shedding of blood. There was no sacrifice of an animal, but this was another voluntary free will offering of a, someone of the children of Israel to come and praise the Lord with. This was a living sacrifice and, a, and an offering made to the Lord without the shedding of blood. This was the way this one worked is that part of the um, grain of the offering was burned on the altar as a memorial offering before the Lord. Then the remaining part of it was able to be consumed by the Levite priests. You got to remember the Levites were um, the stewards of the altar. They worked for the Lord, and so they had a livelihood to earn in the process of working the sacrificial system. And they got to, when a grain offering was presented, they got to consume and, and partake of the bread that was the part of the offering. So part of it was burned before the Lord as a sweet savor to the Lord. It was mixed with frankincense and it was always made with oil. It was always not made with leaven and it was never offered with honey. Kind of a mystery here why those things were specific. We think about the leaven 
during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that, which is coming up soon, that uh, there's to be no sin associated with the offering. That makes sense. Um, why no honey was presented before the Lord raises a little bit of a question mark. Some people have theorized why that might be. Some people have even questioned whether honey itself is kosher or not kosher for Passover because it wasn't allowed in the grain offering. But that's a little mystery of study that I encourage you to, if you're interested in uh, finding out some of the mysteries of the scripture that's one that has always uh, been curious to myself four types of grain sacrifices or grain offerings I should say uh, is that it distinguishes that you could bring an offering that was baked in an oven you could offer an offering that was cooked in a griddle or a pan that wasn't covered you could offer one that was cooked in a covered pan and then you could offer one that was simply roasted grain four different types of sacrifice based on whatever your capabilities were to create this and offer it to the Lord. Like I said, a living sacrifice without the shedding of blood, another voluntary offering of the sacrificial system. Leviticus chapter 3 talks about the peace offering. This was another voluntary offering. This is the only offering that was made in the altar service that was able to be consumed, part of it was able to be consumed by the person who brought the offering. By the person who, that when this took place, when a peace offering was, was brought or given, it was either an ox or a sheep or a goat, it was a male or a female, it was another voluntary free will offering made to the Lord. This was a joyous, re, a rejoiceful occasion in which somebody is giving a peace offering. They are giving it to the Lord. They are coming to do business with the Lord. Whenever I've talked about in the past about um, coming to the tabernacle and how the tabernacle is like the house of God and that it's a sweet, wonderful occasion when someone can come into your house and they can food is provided, food is consumed, wine is had, fresh bread is made, and you come to do business with someone before the Lord and how wonderful of an occasion that would be. That When I'm really describing that, I'm describing the peace offering. I'm describing this one that is the, in my mind, would be the most wonderful offering to give. That it's not because one sinned. It's not because that um, we're needing to make atonement. We're needing forgiveness. We're needing to make restitution. No, this is a free will offering of two friends joining together. If you call God your friend, that this is the offering you would come and you would give. And you would share a meal. And when the sacrifice would take place, and the person would then bring the meat back off the altar, and they'd go back home, there would be a great feast before the Lord with all the friends, with all the family. This was a wonderful offering to give. Again, not having anything to do with sin. Nothing whatsoever. Something that's interesting during the part of this sacrifice, this one also is described as to be a sweet savor to the Lord, is that in the process of this sacrifice, it still had the one bringing the sacrifice lay their hand upon the head of the sacrifice. Sometimes people have always said that, that during the course of a, a sacrifice, the one bringing it would lay their hands on the head as if to put their sins upon that animal, as if to... to, to um, uh, that the substitutionary system of that this animal is now paying the price for my sin, that they lay their sin upon the head of the animal. What's interesting about that, though, is that one, it doesn't say both hands. It just says one in the scripture. And secondly, why would one lay their hand upon an animal for the peace offering, which has nothing to do with sin? What it does is what I truly believe it does is it makes a connection. It makes a connection between the person bringing the sacrifice and the animal being sacrificed as if to 
truly stake claim in this is the offering I am giving. So when you see the scripture talk about the laying of a hand on the head of a sacrifice, not necessarily the one's sins being laid upon the animal because that same procedure is associated with the peace offering. So something to keep in mind when you see that in other parts of scripture when one would lay their hand upon something and not that they are laying their sins and their burdens upon it but that they are making a connection between them and their sacrifice if you will Leviticus chapter 4 this is what begins the commandment of the sin offering this is the sin offering that is if someone sins very specifically said in uh, Leviticus chapter 4 that if someone sins unintentionally and then it becomes known that they transgressed the commandments of the Lord. They were going about their day, doing their procedure as they should, but then it's then they think that everything's fine when then somebody comes back and tells them, wait a minute, you did this incorrectly. You didn't follow that commandment correctly. You hurt me in that situation, or you didn't realize that harm had been done, but you, I'm now informing you that you had done it. Somebody is then repentant. They're, they're just like, I, I didn't know. I did not mean to cause harm. But still, in, uh, in that case, sin has taken place. This is the commandments for to make restitution and to make sacrifice if that sort of unintentional sin takes place. Four different types of sin are described in Leviticus chapter 4. Four times the word unintentionally is mentioned in Leviticus chapter 4. The number 4 is very prevalent in all of these sacrifices. This is a giveaway for anybody who's done any gematria studies or uh, number meanings. The number 4, 40, 400, 4,000, and many times over has a connection to the Messiah to his work, his redemption. He came in the biblical year 4,000. Um, every time that something was 40 days or the number four always seems to tie themes back to the Messiah. So what, is the, what did the Messiah do for us? What did the Messiah do? Well, by seeing this word unintentional four times in Leviticus chapter four, we will see and learn that through all of these sacrifices of the altar service, there is Sin, um, there are sacrifices that rectify unintentional sin. There is no sacrifice, according to Torah, that can make restitution for intentional defiant sin. There's, you can't find it. It can't be found. However, this is what we believe, that the work of Yeshua and his sacrifice did for us. That he was the acceptable sacrifice for willful defiant sin. Willful defiant sin, according to Torah, is punishable by death. It was Yeshua that paid the price, that stood in the gap, that took the punishment that we deserve, and that he took the punishment of death for willful, defiant sin. This is the connection made back to Leviticus chapter 4, where we see this unintentional sin. Four times it's mentioned over. Well, let us remember what the Messiah did for us. That even though we don't find a um, recipe for restoration in, the, in Leviticus for willful, defiant sin... We can see that number four, remember the work of Yeshua, and that he is that promised son. He's the Lamb of God, provided by God, from God, that made that sacrifice. Very interesting the way that these things all connect back to the Messiah. Um, the four types of sin it talks about, it, it gives specifications for if a priest 
sins unintentionally, if, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, if a king or a ruler sins unintentionally, and also if a common man sins unintentionally, and that there's a prescribed way that that sacrifice is to take place. When it comes to the common man, it gives various options, and in various times of, the, of sacrifices, when you're reading these instructions, sometimes it gives options. If one could bring, um, if one can bring a goat, then they are to bring a goat. If they're unable to bring a goat, then they're to bring a lamb. If they're unable to bring a lamb, then they're supposed to bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to make this sacrifice. Very interesting thing that we see sometimes with the description of these sacrifices. There's options to them, and that there are still payments that can be made depending on one if one is rich and has many possessions or one is poor and does not have many possessions there is still restitution and restoration able uh, that is possible for the common man whatever station of life you are in this is the same thing we talk about when we talk about the sacrifice of yeshua and that he did it for the whole, for all the world the savior of the world that it, no matter if you're rich or poor young or old these sacrifices there is a way for you to be restored to the father amen the last offering, the fifth offering talked about in our Torah portion is what is called the trespass offering. This one's very interesting because it talks about how if one becomes unclean, if they touch something that is unclean, it also talks about that if they, someone touched something unclean, they weren't aware of it and they became defiled. It also talks about how if they... Um, uh, later on and into chapter 6, it talks about if they lied to their neighbor, if they took a pledge that they shouldn't have done, if they stole something, if they extorted money from, uh, from their neighbor. This is the offering that at times would be if you made a mistake and you did something wrong to your neighbor, that you're found guilty. You not only make a trespass offering and a sacrifice, but you also make restitution to them. It says at times that it says that you shall return the value of their possession plus one-fifth. And that there is a system in place to make restitution if these, something, one of these things takes place. When the trespass offering was given, I said before that, like, like I said, that there was different ways and offerings that you could give to make this trespass offering. Um, you're to uh, bring a, um, a goat. If you can't bring a goat, a, a kid of the goats, you bring a lamb. If you can't bring a lamb, you bring two, uh, two birds. And then even it goes another step further that if you cannot even bring two turtle doves or two pigeons it even says you can bring one tenth of an ephah of fine flour that a grain offering could be given for someone who needing to make restitution for their trespass that this is an offering even to the poorest of the poor that could not purchase an animal or couldn't own an animal or catch an animal to make an offering before the lord even though those animals had to be without blemish they had to be um they had to be um worth of value and um, acceptable to the Lord in the sacrificial system. But even a grain offering could be given. One without sacrifice, without the shedding of blood can be done and forgiveness can be given without the, shedness of blood, the shedding of blood. This goes against a lot of um, understanding from the New Testament and what a lot of Christians will say that forgiveness can't be without the shedding of blood. However, it says here in the scripture that there is a forgiveness given of a trespass of someone even by giving simply fine flour as a grain offering and forgiveness is given. 
Something that we should always remember about when forgiveness is made, you can forgive somebody without the cutting or shedding of blood to you know, get your uh, seven pounds of flesh, if you will, to forgive forgiveness to somebody. The Levitical priesthood, the Levitical altar service gives a precedent for that kind of forgiveness as well. I mentioned very specifically the first three offerings were a sweet savor to the Lord. The sin offering and the trespass offering, nowhere in the scripture does it say that it is a sweet savor or aroma to the Lord. Even though something else is burned, even though the same material is burned in the course of those offerings as the previous ones, it does not say that the Lord relishes in that sacrifice, which is the same way that you feel whenever somebody makes restitution to you. If somebody, if somebody wronged you and then they, you go through the process, they make a payment back to you, you don't relish in receiving that payment. You still, the, the process in which it took place is that, you know, you wish it didn't have to happen. You wish it didn't have to happen that way. Of the other offerings of the, of the altar service, the Lord relishes in the fact of those voluntary offerings of someone bringing something to them of their own free will to God in you know, the worship of him. He relishes in that. He loves the sweet savor of those offerings, of the sin offerings. God did not set up the sacrificial system so that we just have a system in place where we always go to the altar. We made a mistake. We have to kill another animal. We go back. We take about two days. We realize we sinned again. And we have to go back and keep killing animals one, every couple of days because we keep sinning perpetually. That is not the offerings that the Lord wants to receive. The Lord wants to receive our free will worship of him. That's what he desires, and we have a system in place for that to take place. Many top people talk about what is the reason for this sacrificial system. The, the sages of Israel have all kinds of ideas on why the sacrificial system is created and set up and is in place. They talk about several different ones. I'll go over these really briefly. They talk about how this system is in place to avoid idolatry, that you would worship the Lord in this way, in this fashion, and not the way that any of the nations would. Many people have animal worship um, that they set up idols that represent animals. Well, here in this sacrificial system, System. We're in the process of slaying those animals and that that is a replacement for the worship of the Lord. We avoid idolatry by following this system. It's to teach repentance and restitution. I've described that as well. It's a prescribed way for you to make up something, make up a mistake that you made. Three, you also surrender to God's will. He commanded these things to take place. This is one way that you surrender to his will by doing what he has commanded. It's a way to express gratitude to God. We always want to know, how do we say thank you to the Lord for the blessings that we do? We pray and we say thank you. But this created a system in place for us to be thankful to the Lord, a procedure for us to do that. It also provided for the livelihood of the priests. The Levites were a set-apart people, even from the children of Israel, and that this system and this process gave them a livelihood, not only because they were the intercessors between God and Israel to worship the Lord, but the, some of the system in place provided a livelihood, food, and other materials to them, um, and that was a benefit of this sacrificial system. This is also to teach, number six, to invoke sorrow for wrongdoing. If you did wrong, you then, you always want to see remorse. Whenever somebody committed a wrong, one of the things they always say that when you then are looking for the punishment, what is, what are we going to do to them? You always want to see them remorseful. You want them to know they did wrong and then the punishment will be 
less. You have, a, you have a heart, your heart goes out to them to have a lesser punishment. If you have somebody who committed wrong, has no sorrow, has no remorse for what they do, you want to throw the book at them. You want to be done with them and you want to give, punish them to the fullest extent of the law if there is no remorse. By sacrificing an animal for a mistake that you made, this was a procedure in which the person bringing the sacrifice would realize this animal that is about to die is going to, be, is going to die because of my mistake, that this is a substitution for me. I deserve to die. However, this animal is a substitution for myself. It creates and invokes sorrow within one for wrongdoing. The sages also say something else, number seven, that imposes fines for doing sin. It makes the, the restitution to where you have a, a price and a value to resolve a conflict or resolve a mistake. If you were rich, you, you sacrificed a bull. If you were poor, you sacrificed um, two turtle doves. And there was a, um, there's a valuation and a system in place to value what one, um, if one sinned, that this is something else that is a reason for the altar service. And number eight, they also say that there is a reconciliation to the divine presence, that we are always sinners before God, and that all of these sacrifices, what it does is it allows us to take responsibility for our mistakes and to restore and reconcile to the creator of heaven and earth that we are less than he is. We have made a mistake, we have sinned, and we make sacrifice to make atonement to him. That is what the sages say is the reason for the altar service. May I submit to you one other primary reason why we have the sacrificial system of the book of Leviticus. We have built the tabernacle. The God's presence has come into it. He's desiring to dwell with us. This is all a system in place that has to all work together for us to receive and to have faith in Yeshua the Messiah. And the reason is this. If we do not build this tabernacle in our midst, then there is no place for God to dwell with us, with the children of Israel. And if God is not dwelling with us in that place, then there's no way to interact with him or make sacrifice to him. There's no reason for an altar to take place if God is not going to be there and partake with us at the altar. Without the altar, there's no sacrifices. Without these sacrifices that are commanded for us to be, there is no sacrificial system. And this, But this sacrificial system establishes for us a substitution for sin. If we do not have all of these things working in, in, in unison, in one accord, the tabernacle, God's presence, the altar, the sacrifices taking place, then there is no biblical precedent for a substitution for sin. And if we do not have that, then we do not have salvation in Yeshua the Messiah. It is through that biblical precedent. From the Old Testament, from the commandments of old, from God to Moses through Israel, that we have a system in place and a precedent for Yeshua's sacrifice to be fit, proper, clean, and done for us that we can receive the full benefit, the full blessing, the restitution, and the restoration of that sacrifice. It was the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices and the high priest and this system that made Yeshua's sacrifice an acceptable sacrifice before God. We will learn more about that as we continue in talking about the Levitical priesthood, the altar service. So when I said before that these commandments and these words are as applicable to us as believers in Yeshua the Messiah as it was in ancient times, I mean it. When I say that it was because of these things that we have salvation in Yeshua. Amen?
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for your words and your instructions. And Father, we thank you for making a way for us to be restored to you, for us to be restored to our neighbor, for a forgiveness for our sins, Father. We thank you for making a way, a system, and a plan for us to make restitution. We are all sinners, Lord. We sin daily, Father, and we constantly fall. But, Father, I pray that you would continue to pick us up, encourage us in everything that we do, and that even though we don't have an altar today, even though we cannot physically keep these commandments, Lord, to make restitution, Father, I pray that you would teach us to spiritually make these sacrifices each and every day as we worship you in our own personal temple, in our own personal tabernacle, Father. I pray that we would make sacrifices in our own hearts, in our own lives, that we would sacrifice our time and our energy to turn our focus back to you, to restore back to you that which you ask, Lord, that there's a valuation for the mistakes that we made. And Father, I pray that you would teach us to return and restore it and that time back to you. That we might have forgiveness in your eyes and in your sight, Lord. And Father, I pray we make offerings to you on a regular basis of uh, joyous occasions, of peace, of voluntary offerings, Lord, that we continue to worship you, keep our focus on you, and not focus on the sin and the mistakes that we made, Father, but focusing on the thanks the thanksgiving that we desire to give back to you for the life you've given us, for the sacrifices you've made, for the things that you have taught us, and for choosing us from among all peoples. Father, we love you, we bless you, we thank you, and we continue to make offerings to you. I pray we make offerings daily, morning and evening, and we continue to worship you in everything that we do in our spiritual walk and our spiritual lives. We thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Asher Natan Lanu Torah Timet V'chayalam Nata Betocheinu Baruch ata Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the Universe, who has given us the Torah of Truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Good to see everyone. Thank you, Ephraim, for the teaching of Vayikra. And uh, the Haftor portion that follows the portion of Vayikra uh, begins for us in the book of Isaiah at chapter 43, uh, beginning at verse 21 is the first verse, uh, and it's going to extend through chapter 43 into chapter 44 a little bit. Uh, as the Haftor portion for this. So let me, let me draw together um, the connection of why um, have the sages selected this passage from Isaiah and how does it parallel uh, Vayikra. If you recall, um, Ephraim shared with you that in that first portion of Leviticus, there's much instruction given to the priests about five particular offerings for the temple service. Um, and beginning first with the, the, the whole burnt offering. And then this portion is going to make a reference to offerings, but not necessarily in the positive way. Uh, so the Haftor message has a homiletic message that it parallels with the Torah portion. Um, now, as, as Ephraim uh, adequately kind of explained, when most of us, I came out of the standard Christian background as a young man, 
and I had received as my instruction of being a good believer of uh, of Jesus that that whole system before that whole religious system before had essentially been done away with that the the coming of the Messiah was so great that by faith and grace it had effectively taken care of the law and the whole temple system and the priests and the sacrificial system and all of those things were ancient archaic things uh, they were just a shadow of things to come but now we have the real thing and it effectively just replaces all of it this is classic what we call replacement theology and Ephraim's key final point in the session is if you don't have this sacrificial system if you don't follow the principles of what God gave in the instruction for how to have it have an altar have a temple a tabernacle system that you have a priest system uh, to receive them that you have a person bringing the gift that it has to have a certain acceptability to the gift as specified by God and then it's proper presentation to the altar and being given as a gift uh, to the Lord then you don't have the principles for a substitution system so that when the Messiah comes as the Lamb of God if you don't have that sacrificial system and those principles in place then what Yeshua comes and does is he's just an innocent man that was wrongly accused and killed. Lots of people in this world, uh, I hate to say it, but are wrongly accused, innocent, and they get killed, but that doesn't make them the Messiah. And that doesn't make them a sacrifice for our sins. But Yeshua, coming as the Lamb of God, and within the structure of the temple system, within the structure of the commandments that God established for a substitutionary system, he did fulfill the things. This is not a sacrifice brought by a man. This is a sacrifice brought by God. But before we men could understand how God could bring a sacrifice and do that for us, we had to learn how to bring sacrifices ourselves to God. It's a pretty simple instructional system, and the bottom line is, is that we now have an understanding for substitution, propitiation, redemption, restoration, atonement. All of those things are born out of understanding the sacrificial system. Without it, those are just multi-syllable multi words with no meaning. But they are words of great meaning to us and profundity in understanding the work that God has done for us, his love, his grace uh, for us. Now, uh, in this particular portion of the Haftor, what, what the prophet is doing, what God has instructed the prophet to do, is they're going to make mention of some sacrifices. And they're going to make mention of it in the way, Israel, you've forgotten the sacrifices. You're not coming and bringing me whole burnt offerings. You're not, you're not coming again and bringing the sacrifices. And what he says, the prophet is basically saying, because Israel, because you're not making this an important thing in your life in coming to do business with me, you're not bringing the sacrifices to me. As a result, your whole relationship is falling apart with me. And he begins in chapter 43, although it's not part of a Haftorah, I want to mention it because the basis of that argument is some very powerful statements God makes to Israel, to you and me, about his relationship. This is how God views his relationship with us. Let me start with chapter 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, 
He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you through the rivers. They will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba, in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west, and I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who's called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, which whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Now, that's a very positive statement from God and his expression of love for Israel, the people of Israel. And by the way, that includes you and me. That's what God thinks about you and me. He, he looks at every one of us and he says, I've created you. I have formed you. By the way, you are descendants, many generations. You are the descendants of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember what I did with them? It was not only for their benefit, but for your benefit. I have done all of these things. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you into this land. I increased you. And by the way, look at the history. There's been many occasions when you were granted favor and others were not. That when it came to choices, God chose us and not others. And every one of us in our heart of hearts, when you stop and you reflect and think about what the Messiah has really done for us, who am I that the Messiah should have done that for me? At part of the spiritual humility, the depth of the relationship that we have with God, is a recognition about how powerful this relationship is. How much does God put into this? For us, for our benefit. He remains faithful. It says he neither slumbers nor sleeps. You and I go to sleep every night. He doesn't. He's still watching. He's still there. He's still paying attention to the relationship and to you and me. And he's ever promised to us to never leave us nor forsake us. And even though we go through difficult times uh, at, at different junctures of our life, he reassures us, do not be afraid. I'm with you. That, that I will hold you up with my right hand, meaning with the strength, with his strength, the strength of God. I will, I will use my strength for your benefit. Now, that's the relationship that we have. That's the relationship that God has always wanted to have. And God, this God who has this relationship with us and has been doing this from a long time ago, specified how he would like to have us come and worship him. He said, if you want to come do business with me, I'm going to set up a table. We'll call it an altar. By the way, it's okay, and in fact, I encourage you. You bring a gift to the table. I'll bring some things to the table. You bring some things to the table. We're going to do this together. In the same way that we have a relationship with a good friend and families, many times we'll invite one another over to our homes. And in so doing, why a, a, a good guest is always thinking, what can I bring? Oh, we're going to have a meal together. You're invited over for dinner. Oh, that's wonderful. Great. What can I bring? Can I bring the dessert? Can I bring, you know, a, a side dish? Can I, you know, what, do I need to bring anything? 
You know, in other words, we're looking because part of that relationship, that friendship, that fellowship that we have, that table fellowship that we have, is it can can be based on the gifts being brought. And of course, a lot of gracious hosts will always say, "Don't bring anything. You don't need to bring anything. I've, I've got everything." Literally, the Lord really has that. He's already set that table. You don't need to bring a thing. I've already got it. But sometimes He allows us to participate with Him. And he says, when you want to participate, this is what you need to bring. Don't bring something that's improper. Don't bring something that's counter to our relationship. Um, you know, bring things that are proper. And I'll, and I'll teach you. I'll show you how to do it. Because things that are brought to the table need to be done right. So... Here we have this tabernacle system, this temple system. Here's the altar. The priesthood are established. You want to come worship the Lord? You come to Jerusalem. You present your sacrifice. Praise the God. We have a feast uh, to the Lord. The appointed times, we have the big feast to the Lord. We all worship the Lord and so forth. But as you know, as time goes on, we get a little lazy. We get a little slow not too attentive, you know, other things start to occupy our time and thinking. And uh, the energy that we first put into our relationship with the Lord it begins to dwindle a little bit. And that's what this portion is going to begin to address, is that Isaiah, the prophet, is speaking to Israel and saying, Hey, uh, Israel, take a look at what's been going on here. And so beginning at verse 21, which is actually our portion, it begins with these words. Chapter 43, verse 21. The people whom I form for myself will declare my praise. Okay, that's kind of a conclusion to the whole front part of the chapter. Yet you have not called on me, O Jacob. But you have become weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have, you have brought me no sweet cane with money, uh, bought me no sweet cane with money, neither have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your iniquities. Let me go ahead and just draw a little spiritual equation here. If you're not climbing the mountain toward the Lord, then you're probably falling backwards off the mountain. If you're not walking with the Lord, then you're probably walking off the path somewhere else. If you're not pursuing the Lord, then you're probably pursuing other things. It's, it's pretty simple. You know, either the Lord is at the forefront of your heart and your life, and you're pursuing Him and walking with Him and in the light, you're drifting off the path, you're sliding backwards, you're doing something else. And uh, what you're going to get ready to see here in this portion, and the reason why it ties in, is listen, there are two ways, um, there, there are only two ways on this decision. You can either worship God as uh, in his tabernacle uh, with his priests according to the commandments that he's given for how to worship him. You can bring your sacrifices. You can be a part of this worship of God. Or the other choice is you're now moving toward idolatry. Because you see, in every person there is this spiritual 
vacuum. It needs to be filled by God. You have a spirit in you, and it needs to have the spirit of God dwell in that house with you. And if you don't, then you're going to find another God. You've got to find some kind of God that will fill that void, that will fill that shape. Every man is spirit and soul and body. Now, the soul is your person, your identity, your intellect, and all that, your life, uh, your body. We understand that. That's things of the flesh. And then there's the spirit part of you. And this is the part where God comes in and is a part of your life. But if, you don't, if you're not having God come in and be that, then you're going to try to find another God to fill that space. Could be you. You might try to put, or Pharaoh, or something else of affection. You'll try to put some kind of God in there. And in the ancients, you know, they would make idols. They're trying to fill that void. They're trying to do that. Now, God recognized this, and that's the reason why he said, when you come to worship me, I have some specific things to do. That way the house will be set up correctly. Your spirit will be able to commune with me correctly. Everything's going to work good. But if you don't follow my instruction on how to worship me and, and, and so forth, you're going to go get another substitute God. You'll forget me, and you'll go do something else. Because you're going to find this hole, and you're going to want to try to fill it. And you want to do it. The, uh, uh, I'm just going to use a real simple thing here to kind of illustrate this. Um, in our American society, and our society is no different from other ancient societies in this regard, what is the thing that we as men, if we don't pursue the Lord, what is the thing that we as common men love to fill that thing with that really gets our spirit up and going, really and motivates us, encourages us, and, and we literally become absorbed in it and so forth. And I can tell you what, exactly what it is. It's professional sports. No different than the Roman gladiator system. And we call them fanatics. We call them short for fans. Actually, we're, we're using a, a spiritual model. And by the way, when you talk to a, a devoted fan of their particular team, man, if you want to see a living example of what faith looks like, just go up and talk to them about their team. Because you'll hear all the testimonies of faith, their, their confidence in their players, and, and the great things. I mean, it's like right, reading the scripture where God is describing how he's going to ride on horse from heaven and with blazing fire. I mean, that, that's the way they picture their heroes in their teams. Okay? And, and I'm, by the way, I'm not saying you can't have fun with, with professional sports or team sports. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm trying to say is if you want to see an illustration of how powerful that part of your spiritual life is, just take a look at some people that believe in their particular athletic team. You know, if you had Christians and believers of God acting in, in that same way, you'd call them extremists. Religious right-wing extremists. But when we see them doing it for basketball, football, hockey, and so forth, why well, we just call them fans for fanatics. And we think it's funny and it's fun and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's what the rest of this uh, 
portion goes into is the prophet says, okay, if you don't want to bring sacrifices, if you don't want to worship me in the way that I have specified, then let me tell you what you what is in front of you. Let me tell you what your life is about. And he proceeds to go down here, and uh, let me read to you now from um, uh, chapter 43. Or, excuse me, let me get into uh, chapter uh, 44, uh, where he begins to explain verse 9. And let me read there for you. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will, will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all of his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water, becomes weary. And another shapes wood. And he extends a measuring line, and he outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes, and outlines it with a compass, and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. So he cuts cedar for himself, and takes a cypress, or an oak, and he raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir, and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for the man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake the bread. He also makes a god and worships it. And he makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Half he eats his meat and he roasts a roast and is satisfied. And he also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of him... He makes into a god his graven image. He falls down before it, worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for thou art my God. I want you to stop and think about it. Here, here's basically what he says. This is what idolatry is. Idolatry is sheer, futile nonsense. There, there is no idolatrous God. I mean, it's a, it's a completely imaginary thing. But it's going to be formed and fashioned by the efforts of the man who later is going to fall down and worship it. And he says, first, you've got to have a guy who's going to make a cutting tool. So you've got to have a guy with big, strong arms and in the forge, and he's, he's going to heat the metal, and he's going to pound it out with a hammer, and he's going to make an axe. Going to make a cutting tool. Then that guy's going to take that cutting tool and he's going to go out into the forest and he's going to find the right kind of wood oak tree, cypress, cedar, something like that. He's going to cut it down and then he's going to have to chip away at this thing and carve away, plane it down, smooth it, measure it all out, form it into the image of something that he's going to make to be called a god. Now all the chips, all of the other pieces that he cleaned away, that's what he's going to use in his fire and he's going to cook his supper on there, bake his bread, roast his meat, so forth, sit back and say, oh, we've had a great supper, we've had a great meal here, and then that, that piece of the wood that he didn't burn, the one that's set up as an image, then he's going to bow down to it and he says, this is my God. You know, just the way he lays the argument out, he's basically saying how ludicrous it is to be an idolater. Why was the guy motivated to begin with 
to make a cutting tool or to take a cutting tool and, and, and make something that he would set up in his house. Why, why was he motivated to do that? Because he wasn't following the way God had specified to worship him. And he has to come up with a new substitute way. Oh, I don't want to do it the way God said, you know, where you go to Jerusalem and go to the temple and present it to the priest. And, and I, I don't want to do it. I, I, I want to do something else. I want to do something different. Let me give you a modern day comparison. We have people who believe in the Messiah, who know all the story about the Messiah, Yeshua coming. Uh, but I don't, want to do, I don't want to do that stuff that they did in Israel. I don't want to do it the way the Messiah did it with his brethren and so forth. For example, that Passover thing, let's not do that. Let's take some of the parts of the Passover thing. You know, we'll, we'll turn it around and, and we'll make it so that uh, uh, we, we'll call it Easter. And, and uh, we'll have, by the way, I think for the kids, I think we ought to get some chocolate bunnies into this thing. Okay, I, I know that wasn't specified at all before, but we'll put that in there because I think that would be better. And that'd be, and I, I know, let's have eggs, and we'll color them, and for fun for the kids, we'll have an Easter egg hunt. And we'll have little chocolate bunnies that you can eat, and, and we'll all call it the resurrection, okay? And the other, we'll make some other things into it and so forth. Because you see, I got this hole in me, because I'm not keeping Passover and not keeping the Feast of Redemption, the Lord gave, i got to come up with a substitute for that. i got to find some other way. Because I don't want to do that, which is what the Messiah did with his disciples. No, no, no. See, we're above that. We're beyond that. And it never stops there. It just keeps going. And... Even in the Christian faith, we've seen this. Well, Israel was already doing this before, only they were involved with Sumerian gods and other gods of other nations, and they were leaving the commandments of the Lord, and Isaiah is talking to them about the dumb things that Israel does when they don't want to follow the Lord. And in Isaiah's day, there was a temple, but the people stopped coming. They stopped coming to worship the Lord. And uh, so the priests weren't that active, so they went and did other things. And next thing you know, I, it's turned into something else. And, and um, the whole thing begins to fall apart. We don't see the pictures. We don't learn the lessons correctly anymore. Um, and it doesn't get passed down to the next generation, you know, what we had, the instruction we had received to begin with. And, and then it evolves even worse. And, and the next thing you know, it's all confusing. And it's just, it's just religion. And there's no, quote, value or substance. And then you have the mockers and scorners saying, like, what are, you, what are you people doing? It's just all archaic stuff. It's just nonsensical stuff. You just go through the motions of doing this stuff. What, what benefit is it? And, and it all gets confusing. And yet at the same time, they recognize the futility of what they're doing. Like... With some Christians I have posed to them for years, they've been going to church, years they've been doing these kinds of things. And they said, well, let me ask you something. I said, when a day of trouble comes to your life, can you call upon the Lord and the Lord answer you in the day of your trouble? Or is that case, sera, sera? 
And I think a lot of Christians have the religion of fate. Well, whatever. Whatever happens, I guess that was God's will. And there, what happened to the relationship? What, what happened to the relationship where the God says, I formed you. I've been, I've been knowing about you from before the foundations of the world. I've been planning on you being part of my kingdom. I called you. I chose you. I love you. I will lay down my life for you. What, what happened to all that relationship? Turns out in real practice... Since we don't worship the Lord the way the Lord called for us to worship Him, why well, we come up with our substitutes and all of a sudden we find they're kind of shallow. Not very satisfying. I don't know about you, but I can only take so much chocolate anyways. And um, I've never seen anybody spiritually satisfied by eating a chocolate bunny. I'm being honest. I've never seen anybody give a testimony that they were spiritually uplifted, their souls were edified by Eve. And I'm talking about chocolate-holic women who love chocolate. Even they didn't testify to Easter Bunny chocolate things as doing the job. So why are we doing it? That's as silly, that's as futile. As some guy carving out some cedar log, making the image of a man, calling it a god, and using the wood chips, you know, to heat his heat his supper with. It's about as dumb as that. That's what this Haftor portion is about. It's it's kind of reverse psychology to try to get us to understand that when God specified certain commandments with how you come to my table, how you worship me, the gifts that you bring, that these are holy. This table is holy. The service of the priests is righteous and true. And that we should defer to it. We should honor it. We should respect it. And we certainly should use it. I'll give you another example of how things have drifted off. In one of the instructions that the law gives to us about coming to the altar properly, one of the things the Lord says, this is so important to me about our relationship, about you coming to the altar properly, that if you have aught with your brother, you leave your gift at the base of the altar, you go back and get that other issue resolved, and then you come back and make your gift to the Lord. Because I don't even want you making your gift to the Lord. I want your heart to be completely clean and pure when you come to the table to worship me so that we can really have a relationship. I don't want any objection to it uh, because you have aught with your brother. But what do most believers do? They have aught with their brother... And they think they can go ahead and come to the Lord and make their gift with outstanding issues of conflict with the brethren. And although the Lord has specifically requested, don't do that until that issue is cleared up, they don't focus on clearing up the issues and having peace in their life. Instead, they tolerate the conflicts and so forth, and then they go through the religious exercise and think they're making their gift and so forth. And if you don't do it the way the Lord has specified, you're morphing and, and, and um, mutating 
your spiritual relationship into something else and it's not going to be satisfying and your faith is not going to work. And sometimes the Lord flat out says, I will not listen to you. By the way, sin does block and does separate you from the Lord in your relationship. And if you're not coming sincerely the way I have specified come before me, then you're putting obstacles and stumbling blocks in our relationship, and, and it's not going to work. The, the, the meeting point, the point where we get it together with God, is when we come to that same table, and you bring your gift, it's given to the Lord, it's put up on the table for the two of you to enjoy with the Lord, and to do business with God. But as, as Ephraim was mentioning before, if you decide that you're going to cast off the entire sacrificial system, if you're not going to honor the altar system, if you're not going to honor God's instructions on how you implement, how you maintain the relationship with God, then you're going to get something less than satisfactory results out of your relationship with the Lord. Now, thank goodness that the Messiah has come and done a tremendous work of redemption for us. Thank goodness that he's come and built the tabernacle of the living God inside of us. And by the way, in us is an altar. And by the way, he is the great high priest, and we can go right there. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. But you see, the principles of what we learned from the tabernacle, from the law, and that was done in the temple service in Jerusalem, in the temple. Those are the same principles that apply to this altar and what's going on here. And if you're standing up and denying the principles for the tabernacle and for the temple system, you're denying the very principles of what works in here. And by the way, you do not have the authority from God. You are not the new priest who can go through and make all the changes in the temple system in here. Now, maybe some Catholics think they are, but I have news for them. They don't. The God I serve, in Jeremiah 33, said, there will be no lack for a man to sit on the throne of your throne, David. And he was referring to the Messiah. The son of David would be the one who would sit on that throne forever. And the very next verse says, And there will be no lack for Levite priests to serve before him daily. He did not authorize another priesthood that would come and serve him. It's the same one that God started with Moses and Aaron, and the same one that was with the tabernacle and with the temple in Jerusalem. And it's the same one the Messiah honors, and it's the same one that will be in the millennial kingdom. Now, that's the way he set it up. We either are going to follow that and obey that, or we're going to be doing something else, and we're not going to get the same results that we're looking for in our personal spiritual walk with the Lord. Is it essential for you to learn to keep the commandments of the Lord, including those in the book of Leviticus, for you to maintain your relationship with the Messiah? The answer is yes. It is essential. And those who would teach you and tell you otherwise are in error. And they do not have the authority 
to usurp what the Messiah has said or usurp what Moses said, and least of which, they do not have the authority to change what God said. Just because they quit doing that and had to come up with a new way to do things, a new way to worship God. I am here to say that if you don't follow the ways that God has specified, you're no different than this guy described in Isaiah chapter 44. You're just out there whittling on wood, making a God for yourself, and eating, you know, your, your nice feast dinner off of the chips and the, the carvings off of the silly thing. You might as well go ahead and throw the idol in there and go ahead and cook your meat. Because that's all the good it is. And then you got nothing. Uh, there was a very famous uh, um, Christian man who said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in every man, and every man is trying to find something to fill it with. Those who fill it with God, the one true God, will be satisfied. Those that are looking for other things will be sorely disappointed. It, it, it won't fill the vacuum. It won't fill the God-shaped vacuum. And it's certainly true of the worship of God. You follow the way God has specified, it'll be satisfying. Don't follow this way. You're going to find, try to find substitutes, all kinds of crazy things. I mean, all the way to the level of chocolate Easter bunnies. And it will not be satisfying to replace the feast of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Uh, your instruction, thank you for your Haftor portions. Thank you for the prophet Isaiah. And we see the lessons, Lord, of the history of Israel, of the mistakes they've made before in not following your commandments. I pray, Lord, today, we who are brethren who know you and want to follow after you, let us not make the mistakes of the past. Let us hold to your instruction and hold to your word. And if we don't quite understand it, Lord, teach us and help us to understand it correctly so that we can apply all of your truths and principles correctly so that our worship and our relationship with you would be one that is satisfying, that we can hear your voice speaking directly to you when you say that you choose us and you love us and that you're our God and our Savior. And we thank you for that salvation, and we thank you for who you are to us. In Yeshua's name, amen. Shabbat shalom. and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom.
Stop the 